Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Before we get to today's show, a quick reminder that this podcast is free for everyone and supported by those who can afford it. So uh, if you have found this podcast a useful companion during 2020, and you'd like to see it continue through 2021, I would invite you to go to plantyourself.com slash gift. If you are in a position where you have the means to support something that means something to you and hopefully uh, you think is doing good in the world. You can use PayPal or Patreon. You can make a one-time contribution or become an ongoing sustaining patron of the show. And if funds are too tight for you to show your appreciation in a monetary sense, you can still leave a review of the Plant Yourself podcast on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. That also helps us a great deal. All right, on to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. I'd like to begin this episode by having you listen to 90 seconds of music. That was Johann Sebastian Bach, Cello Suite Number no. 3, BWV 1009, The First Bourree. And it was played by today's guest, Bob Cafaro. Seventeen years ago, Bob was a cellist with the Philadelphia Orchestra, living his dream, when, out of the blue, he was struck down with multiple sclerosis, MS. And his story is one of the most inspiring and amazing I've ever heard. Just as an example, during the doctor's visit in which he received his formal diagnosis, the doctor offered to write him a note so he could receive disability from the orchestra. And instead of accepting it, Bob told him where he could shove it and announced that he'd be playing with the orchestra within six weeks. And as anyone who knows anything about MS knows, you can't cure MS, you can't even stop it. You can slow its spread for a little while, sometimes for a long while, but basically it's a, it's a life sentence and ultimately a death sentence. And what Bob did through diet, through lifestyle, through willpower, and through the study of some of the most inspiring people on the planet is he battled and defeated 
MS. And I'm so happy to have him sharing his story with us today. So without further ado, Bob Kafaro, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you very much, Howard. It's a, it's a pleasure to finally hook up with you voice to voice, so to speak. Right on. So your story is so amazing. It's, uh, it's chronicled in your book, When the Music Stopped, which I have just finished reading, taking copious notes. And there's so much wealth of, of experience, of information in there. But I wonder if you just start by just giving us, you know, the, the basic framework of, of your story. Uh, just to give this in a nutshell, uh, I had just turned 40, uh, December of 1998, started getting uh, numbness in one leg for the first time. Never had anything quite like this. Uh, saw a few doctors. They thought it was just a pinched nerve, nothing to worry about. Uh, two months later, I started to lose peripheral vision in my left eye. So when you've got a combination of numbness in one leg, loss of vision in one eye, it becomes something of a textbook case of multiple sclerosis, unless you can rule out other things. Uh, I saw my first neurologist then. This was February of 99. He said, as a matter of fact, yes, you have multiple sclerosis. I didn't want to believe this. I got a second opinion, and uh, two months later, they found lesions in my spinal cord, three small lesions. I still didn't want to believe I had it. In July of that year, I started to lose peripheral vision in my right eye, which got pretty scary. Uh, for the second time, the ear intravenous steroids that stabilized the situation for about one week. Then things went off the edge of the cliff. I started getting motion sick. I thought it was a stomach bug. It didn't go away. Uh, I wound up vomiting, not being able to keep down food, and I wound up in the hospital for dehydration. Uh, at that point, the disease had taken over my whole central nervous system. I was incapacitated. I could not use my hands. I was legally blind in both eyes. I was incontinent. I could hardly walk. I was hearing helicopters all the time. Um, I, you know, it, my body felt like it was getting electrical current. And at that point, I saw a neuro-ophthalmologist that I had been seeing since February. I failed a basic vision test. I failed a visual field test. And he told me I'd be on permanent disability. And this, this might be a good time to talk about what, what your profession was and is. Okay, I'm a cellist in the Philadelphia Orchestra. And uh, the way I start in my book, actually, is when I get out of the hospital, I was looking for some brightness in my day, and I took my cello out of the case to make sure I could still play. And not only could I not play anymore, I couldn't even line up four fingers on one string. I had no coordination. I had no control over my muscles at all. Yeah, so this, this was really, you know, the, the end of, of your professional career, something you've been, you've been practicing for for your your entire life since you since you were in high school um you know in, in addition to the the physical you know, symptoms sure yeah and it was it was literally game over and uh, you know just for those who say well you know he didn't beat ms because he had been he's obviously been misdiagnosed i had seen five neuro, five neurologists and one neuro ophthalmologist that year and I had over 50 lesions in my brain and one in my spinal cord that was three and a half centimeters in length. And they were completely debilitating. It cut off my entire central nervous system from my brain. Right. Now, so at that point, and, you know, you, you, 
you know, one spoiler is we're having this conversation. Another spoiler is the people said, you know, they, they doubt that you actually beat MS. So we'll, we'll, we'll get to, uh, your, to your journey. But at that point in 99, what did you, you, you write in the book that you were in denial for a long time. But what did, what did you, under, what was your understanding of what MS was and where, where your life was going with this diagnosis? Yeah, the only, my only previous knowledge of MS was Jacqueline Dupre, the, the brilliant British cellist, who was so great. And she unfortunately had to stop playing at the age of 26. And she later died from complications of the disease at 42. And she had one of the very most aggressive cases of the disease. And that was my only knowledge. So you can imagine a cellist a professional cellist in the Philadelphia Orchestra being told I have multiple sclerosis. You know, it's, don't tell me this. This is not happening. And, you know, I, I, I tried to keep it very secret from my colleagues in the orchestra. I told them, oh, oh I was misdiagnosed, you know, during these, these respite periods where, uh, you know, the disease strikes and goes back into hiding. But come August of 1999, I was no longer in a state of denial, and I was no longer denying it to my colleagues. Mm -hmm. It was obvious. Three people came to visit me in the hospital from the orchestra, and there was no more lying about it at that point. Right. So, so, what did you think was going to happen to you at that point? Like, what was your what was your self prognosis? Uh, basically, when I talked about this in the book, that I tried playing the cello, I couldn't even line my fingers up, and I tried playing, and it was just hopeless. And I put the cello back in the case and I started crying. And at that point, I really thought about suicide because everything that was precious in my life had been stripped away. You know, the use of my hands, my ability to communicate my soul through an instrument, uh, my ability to see, my ability to do. I could no longer drive. I couldn't I couldn't write. I couldn't do anything. Right. And it was just hopeless. So, so did did anyone give you the sense that MS was beatable or manageable or what, like what was the most optimistic um, input you got from the medical world? I'm going to say, well, this was uh, back in February, the very first neurologist uh, named uh, Robert Michael Sperling. He's the one who told me I had, uh, I had MS and he said, well, don't worry, you know, MS is a very manageable disease to live with. And he says that even half of the people that have it will never know it. Hmm. And what I, what, what I turned out was not a manageable case. It was a extremely fast progressing and debilitating case, but it was actually Dr. Robert Surgot. He's the head of neuro ophthalmology at Will's Eye Hospital in Philadelphia. He was the one who told me I'd be on permanent disability, and uh, I, I, I was very reactive when he told me that, and I said something rather disrespectful, and uh, I basically told him he could use his note as a suppository. So, he, so his, note, his note to the Philadelphia Orchestra. Right. He was going to write me a note for permanent disability. Those were his words. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh, you know, apparently he was very offended that a patient would say something like that. And, uh, you know, I started to cry in his office at that point. And I told him, I'm going back to work in six weeks. And he said, how are you going to do that? And I said, well, I'm going back to work in six weeks and nothing's going to stop me. And uh, he saw I was really upset. And he said, basically, he's seen people in my position 
a year from now and they're still in a wheelchair and you've seen people in my position one year later and you wouldn't know anything's wrong with them. Mm. I said, well, I'm going to be one of those people a year from now. You won't know anything's wrong with me. And I wasn't able to do that in a year, but I was able to do it in about maybe two to three years it took to get to that point. So he, he was actually thinking like he's doing you a favor, right? He's going to write you this note. He's, you know, you're going to get some sort of benefits. You don't have to worry. You don't have to struggle. And you can just, you know, move on with, uh, you know, figure out your second career or something like that. Sure. But, uh, you know, for me, disability was not an option. You know, I've, I've never been on unemployment. I've, you know, to me, something about it. I, I don't know why. You know, maybe I, I've seen people abuse the system for disability and something about it doesn't sit right with me. And when he told me that, it was just, it was a death sentence. Mm -hmm. And I just decided, I'm not going to accept this. This is not happening. Okay, so this, this is like 1999. So there, there is the internet, as I, as I recall. It wasn't particularly user-friendly uh, right. in terms of, like, what did you do? At the, at the, you know, you, you walked out of the doctor's office, you... You know, you uh, offended him, and now you're like, "Well, I just, I just put a, you know, a stake in the, in the, in the sand. What do I do now? Where did you go to find out what to do next?" Well, I started getting. I mean, yeah, this is probably uh, maybe in the days of dial-up internet back in '99. But I had this big monitor. It was a 21-inch monitor. You know, the huge thing that got very hot. And I remember making the font really big so I could read, and uh. I, I couldn't read a book. And my eyesight was limited. And I found uh, one of the first things I found was a website uh, by a doctor. I call him Dr. Batman because it's a name that's rather unpronounceable. But he wrote a book called Your Bo You're Not Sick, You're Thirsty, Your Body's Many Cries for Water. And I read this, that he had documented cases of people with uh, all kinds of chronic illnesses that got better just by following a simple formula of drinking half your body weight in ounces of water a day. So I embarked on that initially right away. That was the first thing I did. So here, 160 pounds, I started drinking uh, 80 ounces of water a day, and I started to feel a little better hmm. right away. So I was like, I think I'm onto something here. So I started exceeding that, and I started in the morning. I started drinking 64 ounces of water before I did anything, before I left the house, every morning. <laughs> and, you know, there were challenges as far as getting used to that kind of water in your system, but I started to feel better. So, yeah, and I, I, I imagine, I imagine like bladder management was a, was a challenge at that point. It was a major challenge. And I did go back to work in six weeks. And, uh, you know, it was funny that, um, I mean, I can tell you this, that, you know, I, I did train myself to go the first hour and 15 minutes of the orchestra's rehearsals without leaving the stage. But after an hour and 15 minutes, it was, it was a point of desperation. I remember I would, you know, where we were, there were two urinals for the men on that side of the stage. And I would stand there. And while I'm standing there, maybe three guys would come in and out and the one next to me, and I'd <laughs> still be there. And I remember they were all joking about it. But... <laughs> I'm making this up. It was pretty funny. Yeah, right. It's like that, that, that scene at the beginning of Austin Powers, right, where he's, he's cryogenically defrosted after like 20 years. He has this really long pee. I didn't see it. But... 
Uh, so, so you're you're back at work in six weeks. You're doing the water cure, which is making which is making you feel considerably better. Uh, but how, like, from from being legally blind and from not being able to move your hands, are you able to play music at this point? I went back to work. I spoke to the librarian and I asked her to enlarge the music for me. And I sat on a stand by myself in the back of the orchestra with this oversized music. And I couldn't, I could hardly move my hands and I could hardly see the music. And it would the optic neuritis, you know, the inflammation of the optic nerves, which is part of your central nervous system being taken out. You know, MS affects everybody differently. For me, it had two targets, my hands and my eyes. And, uh, <laughs> like, like it knew you were a cellist. Yeah, and it did. So, you know, here I, I really struggled, and I literally mined it for a lot of the first season back. But it was a refusal to give in that I, I was not going to let this disease take over my life for one minute, never mind, you know, one day, just not one nanosecond. So we're... So, yeah, I mean, were you like I, I? I was in an orchestra as a kid, and I was I was you know decent in the high school orchestra. So I was, then I got promoted to like playing in a local, you know, South Orange Symphony Orchestra, where I was so far out of my league that like the best I could do at times was just try to move my bow in the right direction and not make too much noise. It was like I'm trying to you know reading your book, trying to imagine like what. What was going through your mind? Did you were you like I'm just I'm I'm faking it here? Are they gonna Are they gonna catch me? Or am I gonna Am I gonna get better? Like what were you oh, thinking yeah. musically at that point? Yeah, your your description of what took place was pretty accurate. I mean, I was just basically moving my bow in the right direction and shaking my left hand, making it look like I was playing, but I I had no muscle control, <sighs> so there was nothing coming out of the cello. And, you know, I, here I was just kind of hoping my colleagues around me didn't notice. I was sitting by myself and, you know, I'm hoping that the people in the audience don't really notice this guy in the back of the cello section. I mean, this is the Philadelphia Orchestra. It's not a youth orchestra. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, so so how, how long did that last before you felt like you were able to contribute musically? I'm going to say before my, the use of my hands started to come back was maybe around somewhere around six to eight months, I started to get the use of my hands back. Hmm. Did you, so, did, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Not, not only did I not have my, you know, here I was deathly afraid of my fourth attack, right? My first one started numbness, second one was vision, third one was vision, and then motion sickness, everything else. So you never know what, what's gonna happen with the fourth one. What is it, you know, what does it have in surprise for me next? Hmm. So here I was, so worried about that fourth attack coming along and not only did i not get hit with the fourth attack but i was actually getting better you know things were coming back my eyesight was coming back the use of my hands was returning all right so now after after the water what was the next thing you you added i started researching uh basically you know you go to a neurologist and you have symptoms they test you for everything to rule out all rheumatoid disease, heavy metal toxicity, AIDS, Lyme disease, all these things are going to be ruled out. In my case, they were. So they said, okay, you have multiple sclerosis. And you said, well, what do I do now? And they said, well, here's the latest six-figure annual drug. You take this drug and come back and see me in one to three months for a, for a monitoring and checkup. And you say, well, 
what what else should I do? Is there something I should? We don't know. What's my prognosis? We're going to hope for the best. Could this have caused? It's hard to say. It's different with everyone. So that says something about the inherent mysteriousness and the you know individual case that each person will deal with with multiple sclerosis. So for me, I was determined to find my own answers. And here I'm a musician. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a chemist. You know, I, I don't know anything about any of those fields. But there's a story of the tractor trailer that gets stuck under the overpass. And they bring out the structural engineers. And everyone's figuring how to raise the bridge to get the truck out. And they, they can't get it out. And some six-year-old kid comes along on his bicycle and stops. And he goes, hey, mister, why don't you just let the air out of the tires? <laughs> and... Basically, that's what I was looking for. I was looking for things that all these experts had overlooked. So I think I was successful in the sense of finding the water cure. And then I started researching MS rates around the world. Mm. And if you look, there is a correlation between, you know, your wealthy industrialized nations and very high rates of MS and your very poorest nations that have the very lowest rates of MS. And, you know, I, I believe there's a, a direct link between lifestyle and rates of diseases that are considered Western in nature. Well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, people in the medical field very often would discount that kind of evidence. They'll say, well, it's correlational. There's no proof of causation. Let's look at the, the clinical trials and the studies. And yet you, with, with, with the innocence of the six-year-old on a bicycle, are able to say something that, that to most people makes total sense is let's look and see who gets this and who doesn't and let's right. copy the the things of the people who don't get it right yeah that's what i did so what brings me to mind is japan i looked at japan they have much lower rates but they're basically on the same latitude as the northeastern united states you know new york japan has much lower rates they've got serious overcrowding they've got definite pollution problems. They've got, you know, environmental issues. Why are their rates much lower? If you look at their diet, it's very different than uh, the standard American diet or SAD, as we call it. Right. You know, if you think that, you know, we eat this all amount of processed food, junk food, right? We look at all the things that replaced water in our diet, uh, you know, soft drinks with high fructose corn syrup, massive amounts of, you know, everything else, coffee, right? Energy drinks. <laughs> Look at all these things, right? They, they, they basically fulfill our need for hydration. And um, one thing that got me there was, you know, the Japanese diet is not only very different, it's very simple, less processed food, but the quantities are much less too. Mm -hmm. America is the land of all you can eat. And if you, uh, one other thing I stumbled upon was the Okinawan centenarian study where they studied over 900 people that were over the age of 100. And you look at their lifestyle, very, very different than ours. Very simple. They eat very small amounts of food. You know, they don't eat till they're full, till they need Alka-Seltzer and <laughs> till they can't breathe, right? They, you know. Right. What is it they say? It's uh, there's the phrase saying you eat to like 80% full. Exactly. Yeah. And if they eat meat, it's the size of a deck of cards and no more. Right. So basically, that's I, I emulated all those, you know, basically a, a poor man's diet. And I started eating very little. I started seeing how what my caloric needs were rather than what I wanted to eat for taste. Mm. OK, so we got we got the water. We got the diet. 
Um, but you went far beyond that. Right. right? Well, for the diet, I, I basically started with Roy Swank's book, Dr. Roy Swank, who's mm -hmm. no longer with us, the MS Diet Book. And I basically took it one step further. Uh, and I basically lived on more of a raw food diet and very, very simple, all organic food, no processed food that cut out all caffeine, you know, anything that could affect my central nervous system. All right. And one of the things that really struck me was when you were looking at the studies, and I guess you're just learning how to read scientific studies, there was this group in every one of the studies called the control group who were given a, like a fake treatment, right? The one group was given the drug, and they were given basically an inert sugar pill but told it was the drug. Or right. And, and you, you noticed something that science has really ignored scandalously, which is the people in the control group get better, and that means something. Right. So I, I call it the placebo effect, where the people, you know, in any clinical trial, you're going to have group A, group B, and your placebo group that will get that, you know, the control group, as you say, that gets the sugar pill, and they're told it's a drug. And um, what happened was I was on this intramuscular injection of interferon called Avanex, very brutal, very difficult, by the way. And uh, when I read the study, it was after one year on the drug, the number of exacerbations in the drug group and in the placebo group were basically identical. And I, that one stopped me and I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why is this placebo group here being doing just as well as the drug group? So that got me started looking into that whole thing. And then you see that uh, multiple sclerosis is one of the more difficult diseases to come up with effective medication for because you have this disproportionately high group of success in the placebo groups. Mm -hmm. So I decided, wait a minute, you know, something's going on here. And then if you looked at the minoxidil or Rogaine, right, which is to make men grow hair, 18% of the men in the placebo group started growing hair where they didn't have it. So for those that don't believe in this, explain that one to me. How would you explain men on a sugar pill start growing hair where they don't have it? Right. Well, so science goes something like, well, people believe they're going to get better, and so they do a little bit, but it's it's dismissed. The, the way you took it was, holy cow, this is this is some kind of proof that our minds can control our bodies. And, and you, you took that really seriously. Absolutely. And if you look at, you know, to me, it's a matter of training the mind. In other words, to me, the people in the placebo groups that get better unknowingly possess an ability. They're not aware of this, but yet they have an ability of their mind to make physical changes in the body. And I was determined to learn that. So the way I did it was I began meditating commands and I did this for two 30 minute sessions a day. For two years, I just sat quietly with no distractions, no music, and I said, my MS is going into remission. It is leaving my body. I can feel the lesions healing. I feel the use of my hands returning. My eyesight is getting better every day. I know that the disease will leave my body. And I, I meditated these commands for two 30-minute sessions a day for two years. Wow. Was, was there a point at which you were like, 
saying those things and like arguing with them inside or like how, how, how much do you, did you have to commit to those statements rather than just sort of saying them? Like I can say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm rich and successful and part of my brain is going BS, you know, but like, what was your relationship to those, to those affirmations that you were repeating? I, I didn't have those affirmations to me. It was just a hundred percent believer. Mm. That I knew I didn't think this was happening. I knew it was happening. And not only did I know it was happening, I was envisioning basic video clips of these things happening. I was watching videos of the lesions disappearing in my brain. I was watching videos of my brain finding new pathways to the muscles or or, uh, was a plasticity, as we call it. Mm. So So, So you were just you were watching something happen. You didn't right. have, you didn't yeah. have doubt. You were just like just like I'm watching a baseball game and someone hits a fly ball. I go, oh, I saw someone hit a fly ball. You're like, I'm watching the MS leaving right. my I body. Was, in other words, I was creating these videos through commands. Mm. Did so that? The, yeah, sorry. Did did that get easier over time? Like from the first day you sat down to to a few months later. Yeah, I mean, I, I started noticing improvement. You know, so, I mean, I worked that. I didn't just go with the mind. I, I worked with the body as well. To me, they, that's compulsory that they work together, the mind and the body. So, I mean, basically what, what I became was I became the Olympian athlete going for the gold medal. And if you look at, you know, an athlete is someone that does amazing things with their body. So someone who's setting out to beat an incurable illness is someone who is going to set out to do an amazing thing with their body. Essentially no difference. So to me, that next day was my gold medal contest, that I was going to get that gold medal. And everything in my life was devoted toward getting that gold medal, everything. Hmm. So one of, the, one of the things that struck me about the book is you have a really eclectic list of people who inspired you from, <clears throat> from people you might expect um to to people you know like lance armstrong who was you know sort of disgraced because of drugs bobby fisher who you know the the chess prodigy who went kind of crazy um but what i mean what what struck me and i and i was i was like taking notes here of of all the, you know, and also, you know, people like Yasha Heifetz, the, the great violinist, and Nolan Ryan, the, the, the baseball pitcher, but that you were looking at all these people pretty much through the same lens of what's the good here, of what, you know, what do they have to offer? So you, you mentioned, like, yeah, Lance Armstrong, he had this thing, and still, he beat, test, he beat metastatic testicular cancer, and he's like a, um, an inspiration for me. How did you go about sort of collecting your uh, your panoply of inspiration well these were people i had uh, studied either in the past or currently uh, i remembered um nando parado from the 1972 crash in the andes mountains i had read that book several times earlier that's alive and, right yeah alive right and it was essentially stored in myself subconscious but you know it's important for people to understand that when that plane crashed in the Andes up at 11,000 feet in the winter, it was 11,500 feet, uh, during the final, the wings and tail broken off, plane lands like a sled, miraculously doesn't hit any rocks, slides 2,000 feet, 
Nando, on the final deceleration, is thrown from row nine into the bulkhead. His skull's fractured in four places. He's given up for dead. He's put in the, in the cold with the bodies. And cold, you're talking like 30, 40 below zero at night. And, you know, the, he had never seen snow. He wakes from this coma three days later, 72 days after the crash. He shows up in the foothills. He went 37 and a half miles through one of the most difficult mountain ranges in the world. And he did this. He never seen snow. He had no equipment. He had no, no training, no survival training, no ice axe, no ropes, no boots, gloves, tent. Right? And he had no food. And mountain climbing teams that reconstructed his route said what this guy did was not possible. Hmm. But yet he had that ability of his mind to supersede the physical limits of his body. So you put Nando Parado in a clinical trial placebo group, he gets better. Right. He's one of them, right? You know, and so I met him three years ago. And that was an event that really changed things for me. That, when I met him, it was something, I didn't know what it was, but I knew I had cured myself of this disease somehow. I hadn't seen a neurologist for 11 years. And when I met Nando, something about what radiated from him made me decide to finish this book and you know get MRIs and uh -huh. you know, prove that I've done this. Right, and he, and he, uh... He wrote that he was inspired by your story. Yeah, I mean, you know, he we, we took a picture and he says, email me the picture. And of course, I, I'm never going to hear from this survival superstar again. But he writes back to me and he even wrote an epigraph for the book and he read the book. I, I know for a fact that he did. And I was so impressed with how busy he is. He's CEO of four companies and he's, you know, today's survival superstar and he's, you know, worldwide with speeches and everything else. So, and, you know, it wasn't just, Nando Parado, um, you know, if you look at Nolan Ryan, the baseball pitcher, right? You know, he pitched in the major leagues for 27 seasons, and at the age of 44, he threw his seventh no-hitter, and in that game, he was still throwing the ball 96 miles per hour. And I've essentially adopted his whole lifestyle. I live like an amateur athlete, and my big game is tomorrow. Huh. So, you know, Nolan Ryan, he has a book called Nolan Ryan's Pitcher's Bible, and it details his whole disciplined lifestyle, even in the off season. So I follow his lifestyle with, you know, exercise, weightlifting, with training. When I take stairs, I run double up the stairs, just like he did at the stadium. And, you know, here at 57, I'm, I'm in pretty good shape, even with MS and everything else. You know, I, I bike every day. I lift weights. I do handstands. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's it's almost like you're, you know, when most people get a disease, they go and they look and, you know, these days you'd go on like WebMD or, or Mayo Clinic or something. And and the information you're going to get is about the average people, sort of the, you know, the middle of the bell curve. Like, what should I expect? You sort of aggressively and willfully went out looking for the the most extreme outliers in human experience, you know, a guy who survived something he couldn't have survived, a guy who pitches, you know, like 17 years longer than anyone could have ever been expected to pitch, especially with his style. He's not like some, you know, sneaky old knuckleballer. He's he's right. th he's throwing heat for for a quarter of a century. Sure. Um, you know, yeah, then, what, look, talking right, about. What, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, what he did was essentially my the reason he's he accomplished the impossible because he staved off the aging process of the human body for more than 25 years. 
I mean, to me, that's not possible, but yet he did it. Right. And so, I mean, what a, what a brilliant and obvious thing to do is to study the people who have, who have achieved things that are thought to be, uh, you know, outside the realm of human possibility. Sure. So, you know, I mean, one of the things I loved about your book, When the Music Stopped, was just you writing about these different characters, some of whom I knew their stories, some of whom I had never heard of, some of them I sort of, I, I knew their names, but I didn't know, you know, the extent to what they had done. But it's not, it's not just reading it, like it's, it was different, like if I had just gotten like some encyclopedia of biographies, it was different reading it through, through your eyes and your interpretation, because I could see... I think after a while, like how your brain was working as you collected, relentlessly collected all these positive stories about what your healing journey was going to be. Right. Yeah. And it wasn't just following, you know, Nando Parado, Nolan Ryan, Bobby Fischer, who didn't just win a chess match. He beat an entire nation, an entire culture, and he did it on his own. And he did it. He devoted everything in his life toward that goal. You know, everything, his performance of his body through exercise, the way he studied chess, he, he was more prepared than anybody else. You know, he just left no stone unturned. Yasha Heifetz on the violin, you've had people play at his level for a short time, but not for 60 years. And he never stopped that goal of being at that level. He was so self-motivated. Right. And, and, you, and you wrote that when you, when you first saw a video of him playing, you were shocked at the disconnect between the passion and the sound and the calmness and precision of his playing. That, that seems like it had a big impact on you. It makes no sense. Right on the recordings, you, know, you hear you know, the violin screams with passion and excitement and you watch the videos and Heifetz just stands there playing. It looks like he's half asleep. But yet, you know, it's, it's that kind of mind control that everything is geared toward what needs to be done physically. Right. It's just the ultimate. So um, you talk about, you know, these different influences on your life, these different people, and you're clearly pulling the good out of them. But what really started getting me is then you talk about experiences from your own life and seeing them as uh, as as part of your arsenal in beating MS, including you write, I, I can talk about this. You wrote about in the book about being beaten by your father. Right. About, you know, he, you said like he, he taught me not to be afraid. Right. Right. I, I was so deathly afraid of my father and, uh, you know, it was the kind of thing, you know, he was hardest on my brother. My brother was the oldest one and my brother really, really took the, the major hit of his wrath. And, I was always so afraid that I would be next. And, you know, I did get my beatings, but to me, they were, it was the cycle, it was the threat was worse than the execution. Mm. And, you know, when I finally learned to not be afraid of him and to stand up for him, to stand up to him, rather, it was, it was a major revelation in my life. And, you know, to me, that directly applied when MS first hit. And then it took me out over that eight-month period. I was so afraid of it. I was so deathly afraid that it would come again with that fourth attack. And it was really, it was so reminiscent of I was afraid of my father's next beating. Mm. I never knew when it would come. But yet I made a decision to stand up to it and not be afraid of it anymore. And it was a direct link 
to the way that things had taught me to stand up to my father when I was young. Right. And another, another instance of this is you talk about one of your best cello teachers being your, your own tendonitis. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When, when I got serious, you know, I, I wasn't serious about the cello until I was in my mid-teens. And when I started to decide to make up for lost time, you know, here I was, I had a kind of a Neanderthal approach to the instrument. It wasn't very scientific. And the tendons in my left arm and my right shoulder gave out. And I went to four different doctors. And then a family doctor was just a friend happened to say, no, let me see. He says, no, your arm's fine. You're doing something wrong on the cello. Hmm. And that one, that stopped everything. And I was like, wait a minute, let me, let me go back to the drawing board and figure out what I'm doing wrong, why I'm getting these tendon problems. And it turned out to be a great teacher. You know, nothing that any teacher, it's, it's like teaching someone how to ride a bicycle with no training wheels. You can explain it, you can demonstrate it, you can run alongside, hold the bicycle until that person understands the balance. It's not happening. So that's essentially what I taught myself. Right. And the other, the other thing I wrote down was that, um, it's your, uh, your father told, told you a few times that you, he was annoyed that you had your head up your ass. Oh. Which, which, yeah. which you, which you then claim is, has has helped you beat MS, like the ability to be introspective and be in your own world. Right, and I, I think that all the people that I talk about in the book that I admire, that have done things that are you would consider humanly impossible, all have that ability to have their head up their ass, so to speak, basically to shut out the entire world and to withdraw into you know, your own little world. I mean, and, you know, I think I write about this at one point that Thomas Edison, you know, he went through all this trouble to find the filament for the incandescent light bulb. And when he finally found it, he sat there and he watched the light bulb burn for 36 hours. And that's a good example of someone who has his head up his ass. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> he, he can shut out the entire world for 36 hours and watch a light bulb burn. And, you know, I say this to my cello students, you know, do you have obsessive compulsive disorder? And they say no. And I say, well, you're going to need it. Go get it. Yeah. You, know, so you really you need to be able to withdraw into your own world and to focus relentlessly on one thing until you get it right. So that's essentially what I applied to the cello. And then later I applied it even more so to fighting a disease that's considered incurable. Right. So. Most of us have these stories of our childhood, of you know the, the stories that we tell ourselves of things that happened. So you know, you get you get beaten by your father. You sort of internalize that as a wound. You have tendonitis. You have asthma as a kid. Right, all the things that you write about. Most the, the the story that we tell ourselves is usually these things are like baggage or unfortunate or poor me or I had to. But like, what was you? I'm, tr- I'm trying to figure out how to ask the questions. Like when, when you got MS and sort of your entire mental world was like, was um, like magnetically tuned towards beating it. Is that when your views of these events became positive? Like they were, they were helpers or like, have you always been that way that the, all these sort of misfortunes were actually, you know, good news I, I, in disguise. I think- Yeah, I think in that sense, it was not a misfortune. I think it was fortunate that I was able to look at, you know, my past events in life as learning experiences and to say, what did I do wrong? How could I improve upon that? You know, what did I do here that can be applied at this point? You know, I even talk about a 
a television show that was one of my favorites, and it was Kung Fu with Dave, the late David Carradine, and the way he would be in some situation, and he would always resort back to his training in the Shaolin Temple, and he would find some analogous situation where it was a learning story, and he would use that lesson in a modern-day situation. And basically, that's, you know, that, that's what I've done through much of my life, and that was all these things were so invaluable when it came to beating this disease to, to find all these answers that everyone else had overlooked. All right, and we were talking uh, off before we started recording. I said it reminded me of Slumdog Millionaire, right, where, where this guy is in an impossible situation, and, and every single time he comes up with the answer to allow him to, to succeed in advance. And then you go back and you see every, you know, these, all these different events in his life, and many of them are wrapped up in tragedy, and yet they were all the things that he needed for, for this pivotal moment. And it feels like the way, you know, we could tell our story any way we want, but the way you, you frame your narrative and the way you believe your narrative and the way you acted upon your narrative is that every shitty thing that happened to you in your life was preparation for this incredible fight. Yeah, and there were, there were no shortage of shitty events in my life. So. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it, basically I did. I used every situation, every, you know, because, I, I, you know, I, I have this strange memory. Like, if I remember jokes I hear, I heard in third grade, like, I never forget a joke. And, uh, you know, here I'm not a writer, but I think it was an ability to tell jokes that basically how I, I learned how to write. This was my first book, and I had never written, and I'm getting a lot of good feedback. So, you know, you write very well. It's very smooth. I'm able to relate to it. And, you know, here I was always intimidated by people who wrote books, and I thought I could never do that. And that was my Uncle Dave. I write about him at one point, this winning the lottery that he says once you have, you know, a roof over your head and you're eating three meals, that basically you've won the lottery. You don't. Right. Everything, everything else is uh, numbers on a balance sheet, right? Numbers. Yeah, very good. You remember that. So. You know, essentially, you know, that's that's where I am as far as, uh, you know. Right. So some, something else you write about is yoga and this particular book that was very, very meaningful to you. Can you talk about yoga and what role you gave it in your healing? Sure. Uh, that's It's the illustrated, it's the complete illustrated book of yoga by Swami Vishnu Devananda. And uh, I read that book when I was in my teens. And here I was doing martial arts and I was always getting these muscle strains in the back of my legs, my hamstrings. And I started doing the book. Uh, I started doing some exercises in the book. And then I started doing some of the breathing exercises. And I, that's when I first started to cure myself of asthma with the yogic breathing. And then I started going further into the book as far as, you know, learning the, the basics of mind control. And that was my first exposure to, you know, anything about having that mental control over the body. So that's another thing that was used later on. You know, so I still, I do every day, you know, I start every day, my morning, one liter of water. I do yoga every morning. I lift weights. I do handstands, chin-ups, you know, I ride my bike every day. You know, it's it's part of the discipline, right? So let's let's talk about the bicycle because that's that was kind of a key piece for you as well. When you decide when you decided you were going to get strong, you were going to get in shape, 
You're like biking to work from New Jersey to Philadelphia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, mean, I, I didn't bike all the way to Philadelphia at night, but I biked the three and a half miles to the train station at night. And uh, I did it in the daytime. I'd bike the 11.2 miles to Philadelphia and I did it every day, you know, rain, shine, cold weather, didn't matter. And, uh, you know, it just, it was an idea of, you know, I was, here I was, the athlete in training. I had my Olympic gold medal waiting for me, and that was to beat this disease. So, so yeah, but I've, I've, I've read that people suggest that when you have MS, you cut back on physical activity, right? Did you- I've, I've read too, but I did the exact opposite. Uh, I was told actually by uh, Robert Surgot, this is the esteemed neuro-ophthalmologist at Will's Eye Hospital. He's the director of neuro-ophthalmology. Very, you know, very prestigious doctor, very knowledgeable, very good people person, too. And uh, he told me, listen, he says, you know, this is when he told me, you'll be on permanent disability. And I said, put that in your pipe and, you know. We, <laughs> let let we the record say you've just given the South Jersey salute <laughs> <laughs> on video. Or as, as uh, former Governor Jim Florio would say, I just waved with one finger, so. So uh, anyway, you know, he uh, I I basically he said, if you don't feel well, you need to take two or three days off and rest. You've got to be serious about this. And those were his words. Mm. And I did exactly the opposite. I felt sick as a dog, no strength. I got on the bike and I went to work on the bike, you know, and I, I didn't let it stop me for one minute. And, you know, here I, you know, even the smallest little hill was, was a, such a workout. And I, I kept going and I kept drinking water. And Right. It's, it's almost like these, these uh, physical challenges were like bits of proof. Like you could be meditating and saying the MS is leaving my body. I'm getting better. I'm getting better. But when, right. when you go up the hill and it's easier today than it was last week, that's, that's like clear, you know, feedback from, from the universe, isn't it? Sure. I mean, I remember, you know, my on my first dry run when I made the decision to bike to work, and that was in September of 99. And here I'd gotten out of the hospital, and I was a mess. And I had no strength. And I got to the top of this one hill. It wasn't not a hard hill at all, but I got to the top, and I, I got off the bike, and it felt like I had just climbed Everest, and I couldn't breathe, and I'm huffing, and I'm spitting, and, you know, I felt like I was going to vomit. And now it's like I could do that in my sleep. Hmm. But... Uh, you know, I, I basically kept raising the bar for myself, not just with the bike, but with uh, weights. You know, when I started lifting weights, I had no strength. I couldn't even lift like just a bar with no weights on it. It was such a struggle. And now every morning I bench 135 pounds and I hold it still, you know, I hold it above the bar. And then I, and same thing with chin-ups, I, I take my weight and I hold it up for a count of 10 with my legs out. I, I couldn't do any of this in 99. Wow. It was so difficult. But it was a gradual building and it, that constant raising the bar. Yeah, it's almost it's almost as if your body is going, wait, what's Bob doing? We we obviously don't have MS because if we had MS, Bob wouldn't be doing this. He's like getting stronger and better. It's almost like you're like a misdirection for your for the part of your body that the that was accepting a disease. Right. And, you know, I, I write about, you know, part of what I like in the book are the, the quotes at the beginning of the chapters. And yeah. one of the quotes is, you know, shoot for the moon. You might get hooked on a star. Right. So that's what I, I kept raising the bar. And 
you know, for me, part of what I did was I set out to win a principal cello audition. I wanted to be Lance Armstrong of the cello, you know, the guy who comes back from metastatic testicular cancer in his lungs and in his brain, someone who's not supposed to ride a bicycle again, who has a 20% chance of survival to winning the Tour de France seven times. So I wanted to win a principal cello audition. So I started setting very, very high goals for myself. Right. And I, I loved reading those uh, those vignettes about the like, the four three or four auditions you had. And you know, yeah. I guess the first one was the the L.A. that was just a mess. <laughs> it was a disaster. Yeah, that was the first one. I was so nervous. You know, my hands were shaking, you know, and oh, right. and then my you know, this girl I had dated for a year was right there on the stage with me. And, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting there playing, and all I can think is she's got to be thinking what a washed-up loser this guy is that, you know, here she knew me from Juilliard, and now, you know, I, I can't play anymore, and, you know. <laughs> yeah, so, well, that's, that's the, the other difference between you and Lance, is you didn't, you didn't go for the beta blockers for performance enhancement. You, you, you came back uh, naturally. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't take any, you know, antidepressants, no beta blockers. I probably would have done better had I done so, but... Uh, if I could just say a word about Lance Armstrong, you know, it's it's such a shame that what's happened the way he was disgraced because, you know, to me, his personality is what enabled him to beat a cancer that you know, he was given a 20% chance of survival by his doctors. That's mm. what they confided, 20% chance of survival. And they said he would never ride a bike again after they opened up his brain to cut the cancer out. And not only does he beat this illness, but he comes back and he wins this Tour de France seven times. Of course, he does it with help. That's not ethical or legal. But the point is, you know, he beat this disease, and I don't think he beat that disease unethically. Right. So in that sense, he will always be my hero because, you know, it's that kind of personality. that He will win at any cost anything he undertakes and to me you have to have that attitude when you confront an illness that's life-threatening or even a situation that's life-threatening right well you know and, and in, in reading your discussion of him and of bobby fisher and of other people who, who let's say are, are shades of gray um like what really got to me is like when our society like we'll, we'll put people on a pedestal and then as soon as they fall we will we will swarm and we will we will jump on them and it's like to make ourselves feel better and you did exactly the opposite with all these folks you said look look at their at their phenomenal grit at their at at their good points it's al it's almost like you're you know you're you're not going to like be a parasite off of their failure and and you know like you you didn't take any pleasure from their failures it's you're, you're simply sourcing from their positivity. Right. And there was admittedly a little selfishness happening there as far as uh, self-preservation from my part that, you know, these people, I, I didn't just admire them. These people were my teachers. They were my guides. These people, all unknowingly that I had never met, I did meet Nando, but uh, I can't meet Bobby Fisher. And I, <laughs> you know, hopefully uh, I have a funny story to tell about trying to meet Nolan Ryan, but... Uh, now, I, I do want to meet these people and, and thank them one day, even Lance Armstrong, because these people were my guides. They were my teachers. They were, you know, my mentors. They, they taught me so much and they, they were they held my hand through this.
and they pointed me in the right direction and said, I did this. This is what you need to do now. Go do it and don't let it stop you, you know, so. Right on. So one one other thing I wanted to bring up is like I don't want people to think that you like totally rejected Western medicine and you were like no I'm out of here like you did take this Avonex. Oh yeah, uh-huh. and, and also the intravenous steroids. Uh, I had no choice. I mean, you know, when you're hit with MS and you get an attack and it starts taking out your optic nerve, mm-hmm. you want to basically slam the brakes on that as soon as possible, and that's where the massive doses of steroids come in and you know don't get confused these aren't anabolic steroids what the athletes would take these are you know very powerful uh, methylprednisolone it's a thousand milligrams a day for generally three days which is the equivalent of 62 and a half prednisone tablets very powerful dose and uh, i was so bad in august during when i got out of that hospital and I was, couldn't move my hands and I was blind and I had just, my brain was like street lights. I was on a thousand milligrams of intravenous methylprednisolone for 10 days straight, followed by six weeks of oral steroids. And I mean, it just wreaked havoc on me. I had immunosuppressant complications. I, you know, I was having these nightmares that you can't believe. I, I had an infection set in out of nowhere in my right elbow and, you know, just my body just, went crazy with it, but these steroids really did stop the attacks in their tracks. So I'm grateful in that sense. And then the Avonex, I took it for four and a half years. And uh, Avonex, you know, statistically slows the progression down in, you know, X number of patients. But not only had I slowed the progression, but I had actually stopped it and then I reversed it. So that was my dis- the reason behind my decision to stop taking it. Mm-hmm. So I did that without consulting a medical professional, and I would not advise for people to do that, to take, you know, medical decisions into their own hands. That, to me, is, is a very dangerous course of action, and I would not recommend that by any means. Right. So what, one of the things I was looking at when I was looking at your story is, you know, as you're right, there's no books by anyone who's beaten MS. There's maybe books by, by people who've managed it well, but mm-hmm. this is the first book of someone who's just you know, completely beaten it. You've got um, some scans in here before and after showing the lesions and then showing in 2013, no more lesions. But, you know, you mentioned before we got on the air that um, somebody was, uh, you know, disappointed in the book because it, it wasn't sort of a textbook on how to, right. how to beat MS. And like, what, what do you think somebody who's facing MS or some other, quote, incurable disease should take away from your story and from this book? What's your hope? Well, if I could just go back, you said there are no other books by someone who's beaten the disease. Those are, I wasn't aware of any. There may be out there. Right. Uh, there probably are, but I, I don't know of them. And at the time, I had not read them. I looked and didn't find any. But um, I, it's funny, I got, you know, all these five-star reviews on Amazon where the book's available for download. And one woman was obviously very unhappy with the book because apparently her husband has the disease and she was hoping for a step-by-step textbook all the way. Mm -hmm. And to me, you know, there, there is something of a missed point there because so much of this disease and dealing with it will come from within, you know, as far as the culmination of your life experiences of looking to people who accomplished the impossible, looking to the placebo effect, 
you know, looking for, you know, all these different answers that people had overlooked. You know, there is no cure for this disease in that sense. Right. It's it's almost like, you know, the old Bob had MS. You needed to create a new Bob who didn't have MS. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was willing to sacrifice anything and everything, you know, and I, you know, I said that, you know, this is a disease that basically will be with you 24 seven. So I decided I was going to be fighting this disease 25 eight. Hmm. This is, this disease is insurgent warfare at its worst. You know, it's a, it's an enemy that attacks and goes back into hiding. And if you fight this disease with conventional weapons, you will lose. So basically I was going to find the Achilles heel and I was going to find all the weak points of this disease, you know, with, you know, everything, you know, they say that special forces will launch an attack at 3 a.m. because that's statistically when the human body is least alert. So I was going to find the 3 a.m. of this disease. And, uh, you know, even one of the things I looked for was the U.S. Army Survival Guide. I found it to be very helpful. <laughs> that's right. I, I, I took a note. I was going to ask you about that. You, you have a chapter in which you, you quote long paragraphs from the U.S. Army Survival Guide. What, what about that book? Um, meant the most to you in, in, in your fight? I would say the part in that book that meant the most was the part on psychology. It's the second chapter. And they talk about how you have people with training and with survival skills that don't survive a life-threatening situation. And then you have people with no training and no skills that will survive a life-threatening situation. And they say the skills are important, but it's the will that's imperative. That's what makes the difference. It's that spirit, that, you know, that unwillingness to give up. Right. So you said now, these days you're, you mentioned you're teaching cello. What, what else, what else are you doing these days? I'm, I'm back. I play, uh, I, I probably play maybe two concertos with community orchestras Every year, I do uh, a lot of cello recitals. I practice the cello every day. I play a lot, and uh, I play the piano one hour a day. I practice the piano one hour a day. Uh, let's see, I'm working on my second book now. I, oh, could you give us? I don't. Even, I don't even know if my TV works. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, unfortunately, I, I. Well, unfortunately, I do spend quite a bit of time with social media now because. Uh, you know, I, I find it so important to spread the word about what I have done and to help others and, uh, you know, even to help with the book and to, you know, open the eyes and give hope to people who suffer from this disease, that hope is out there and hope is within as well. Right. So I, social media has basically opened up a whole new area in my life. Right. So, I mean, when you're working with, with, with students or just with people in general, like it's, it's very easy for us to feel sorry for ourselves. And I'm wondering how, you know, if you encounter that and like having been through what you've been through, do you have ways of helping people like get over that and, and see that whatever, whatever obstacles are in front of them are meant for them to overcome? Right. I mean, I, I talk about this in the book that for me, you know, you're diagnosed with this disease and, you know, it's, it was actually Robert Surgot, the head of neuro-ophthalmology at Wilsey Hospital. He said it would be unnatural for anybody with such a severe case of multiple sclerosis as yours to not go into a very serious depression. 
And uh, he wrote me a script for Prozac, which I put the script in my pocket and I never filled it. But one thing I did as part of my recovery was I started devoting a lot of time to volunteer work to help mm. people that were much, much less fortunate than I was. And I found that doing so really, it did not allow me to immerse myself in self-pity, you know. So that's, you know, my wife says I, I, I overdo it with trying to do things for other people, but... Uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything else. I think it's one of the key factors that helped, you know, and I, you know, I tell my students, you know, the, my, it's funny that the parents of my cello students all say that I don't give cello lessons. I give lessons in life. Mm. <laughs> so. Right. Well, you know, you, you're, you're taking all these other people, right? Like Bobby Fisher didn't teach you chess. Heifetz didn't teach you violin. Nando didn't teach you mountaineering. They all taught you life. Right. They, they taught lessons in life. That's that's very well put. Mm -hmm. Great. So there's one one more um, story from the book. Like if I had to close my eyes like and, and imagine like 10 years from now, the, the image from the book I will take away is actually and you wrote it in a really funny way. But it was, you know, it was horrifying. It was like gut wrenching. Was you driving in New York? Try, trying to find a parking space because you because that's the game right to to find the the free parking um and i it was funny because i was just up in new york last week and i drove around for 10 minutes and i couldn't and i like i just pulled into a lot which i hate doing but i'm like reading like you and you're you're blind right oh. can you tell us tell us that story a little bit just to to give people a sense of what what they're going to find when they when they buy the book was one of the things my father always taught me is that you know you, you you've got to look for better ways to do things in life and he taught us you don't pay for parking you find parking on the street and it was, it was the whole mo and so i had it all worked out i i lived in manhattan when i went to juilliard i kept the car on the street up in manhattan for two and a half years i did the alternate side of the street parking I had the whole thing down to a science outside carnegie hall you can park there at 7 p.m not before, but you've got to get there at 7 p.m. on 57th Street. So that's here. I, I walked up to my car from Carnegie Hall up to 74th Street, and I was in no shape to do this. This was back in, you know, at the beginning of my recovery. I had no strength, and I got to the car, and it was like I had just run a marathon. And when you're in that situation, you know, your, your respiration is up, your pulse is up, your optic nerves are inflamed. I couldn't see anything. And here I needed to get down to my free space at 7 o'clock on 57th Street, and it's dark. And I'm driving down in Manhattan, and I couldn't see whether the lights were red or green. And, you know, I'm, I'm like going at walking speed with my head out the window trying to see, and people are screaming at me. They're giving me the New Jersey salute. They're yelling names of, you know, feminine hygiene products and orifices, and it was awful. And I got into the space at seven o'clock and I didn't hit any pedestrians or hit any cars. And, you know, then I had to play this disastrous concert and I couldn't move my hands and I couldn't see anything. And it was I wasn't sitting alone. I was with someone. It was just horrible. Right. And I think and I think I, you know, we're close to the end of, of the interview. And I think I, I want to bring that up now because like the. The difference I see in, you know, in all through your writing is like you, you've just done a really amazing, heroic thing. And yet I don't get a sense of like ego or self-congratulation or aggrandizement. Like, you know, you talk, you tell very, very um, 
honest and vulnerable stories about yourself, including that one. Like there's there's a real um, sort of charm to 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 your attribution of like, yeah, you you marshaled all your your strength, but you're nobody special. Like I got the feeling like anyone could do what you did if they did what you did. If that makes I sense. I believe that. Yeah. I mean, first of all, there's no uh, ego or slapping myself on the back here because, you know, basically this is my second chance at life. And I am so grateful to, you know, here I'm supposed to be blind and in a wheelchair and on permanent disability. And I can play the cello again, probably better than I did before. And, you know, I'm, I'm in probably better physical condition than I was at the age of 20. Everything's come back. And I, I am so grateful. And I believe that we are all capable of being a genius. I don't believe in the genius in the sense that someone's just born doing something. You know, to me, the genius is someone that devotes 10,000 hours to what they do. And they present a finished product and everyone else looks and says, wow, what a genius. Yeah. But we're all capable of that. You know, if, if you don't, you know, sell the TV, don't play video games, you know, devote all that time to what you do. You know, they say the average child in America, by the time they graduate high school, will have spent 12,000 hours in school, right? In the 80s, that same child will, on average, have spent 18,000 hours in front of a television set. <laughs> right, we're good, at, we're good at that. Right, that's just, and now, you know, this has replaced the television set. Everyone just stares at their phone all day. <laughs> but the point is, if those hours were spent doing constructive things, Imagine what we were capable of doing, each one of us. Right. So I believe we're all capable of being a genius if we apply ourselves. Right. And you know, I just remembered your the last words of the book are a quote from uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, saying, I, "I worked hard. Anyone who works as hard as I did can achieve the same results." Like, well, you know. that may be somewhat debatable, but <laughs> that's that gives an idea of how hard he worked. Right, right, you know. but uh, but you know, assume, assuming he meant it, it's like he worked hard. Believe me, yeah, yeah. But uh, I would say there is some genius there, definitely. <laughs> sure, but you know, we we all have our own genius. It might not be. It might not be for that. We could. We all can't be that, but we can all be our own genius. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very much. Right. So the book is When the Music Stopped, My Battle and Victory Against MS. It's available on Amazon as both hardcover and uh, Kindle download. Uh, my, it's available for download on Kindle on Amazon, and it's available on my website for purchase. Uh, everyone who purchases it on my website gets a signed copy. So Okay, what's, what's, what's the website? It's www.bobcafaro.com. All right, spell that. B-O-B-C-A-F-A-R-O dot com. Awesome. So people can, can get the book there. I recommend it, you know, certainly if someone has MS, but really, you know, the um, a book I've read and really loved recently is called uh, Radical Remission by Kelly Turner, and it's about uh, people who have come back from, quote, incurable cancer. And, you know, yours is a textbook example so, you know, sort of facing facing any kind of odds. Um, I think this this story, you know, and not even medical, like any, any you know, I think anyone who is looking at a big challenge, there's so much wealth of of information and, and vulnerability and honesty here 
that uh, you know it's a it's a great contribution to uh, to to our understanding of, of what what's humanly possible. And I'm so honored and so grateful that you took the time to be on the podcast with me today. Howard, I wish I could shake your hand, but uh, <laughs> thank you so much. It's it's such it's an honor to meet you too. I'm so impressed with what you've done in your whole you know, your blog and your website and everything and what you've done for yourself with the plant-based diet, I, th I think is nothing short of amazing as well. So well, I'm thanks. just happy to, happy to be here and happy to be part of this show. So thank you. Right on. Well, so uh, next time I'm in Jersey, we'll, we'll shake hands. Definitely. You know how to get in touch with me, Howard, okay? Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself podcast. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on over 150 archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. And if you subscribe to the podcast but not the email newsletter, please go to plantyourself.com and sign up. I include links to articles, my weekly TV show, Triangle Be Well, and my grammar is way better in writing. Thanks this week to podcast patrons Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Morrow, Elizabeth Clifton, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, and Rachel Behrens for your generous support of this podcast. If you, who are not on that list, would like to support the show, you can share this and other episodes on social media or any other way with anyone you think would enjoy or benefit from this conversation. You can write a review on iTunes or Stitcher, and I'm amazed at how many more listeners I get for every couple of iTunes reviews. It really seems to make a difference. So if you enjoy the podcast and have a couple of extra minutes, please go online and share the good, the bad, and ugly with the iTunes world. You can also become a patron yourself by pledging a one-time amount or ongoing donation to the podcast. And you can do that over at plantyourself.com by the right sidebar. You can find the buttons that say donate or Patreon. My current goal is to spend about half of my work life podcasting around plant-based health and wellness, not just the Plant Yourself podcast. I've got some other projects that are in the works that I am so excited about. I'm practically quivering uh, right now. And in order to spend that time and to do that stuff, I've got to have income from this work. And I'm not willing at this point or possibly at any point to take on sponsors, to do on-site advertising or, or set up affiliate deals with my guests. Ah, I'm tired of that from the internet marketing world. And I think of myself really as an independent journalist and someone who's working for you, for my listeners and for my readers. And I know how easy it is to be swayed by money from my prior life in marketing. And I'm not proud of some of the things I did, not just for money, but after I got money. Like it's it changed how I looked at things and it made me forgive things that were maybe unforgivable in some of my clients. And I just don't want to go down that road again. So if you've got a couple of bucks a month that can say thank you for the podcast, for the work I share, that could really help a lot. Announcement time. Denise Minger, the woman who caused quite a stir a few years ago with her so-called debunking of T. Colin Campbell's The China Study, uh, spoiler alert, no debunking was done, no studies were harmed, and she has recently admitted as much. But she has taken on Proteinaholic, the book that I wrote with Dr. Garth Davis. And with a little of my editorial help, Garth has put together a really long response to her critique. And it's part one of probably three. 
So if you're a nutrition nerd with a nerd minor in statistics, you'll want to check that out. And you can find the link in today's show notes at plantyourself.com slash 153. Next week on the show, I speak with Matt Fraser, the no-meat athlete, and Sid Garza-Hillman, the small steps man. And we talk about the sane and happy path to lifestyle change. And in a world filled with militant extremists, it's refreshing to talk to these laid-back, happy, sensible, and generous fellows. In garden news, the new corn bed we planted is right outside my office window. And those little iconic corn leaves have poked through the soil. And I'm reminded every time I look at them of the Native American challenge to any philosophy or ideology. They'd say, does it grow corn? Meaning, is it useful in the real world? Does it nourish the people? So my wish for you is that you find evidence right outside the window of your work of how your efforts and intentions are growing corn in the world. That's it for this week. And as always, be well, my friends. Oh, before you go, one more quick treat for you. Bob Cafaro playing cello suite number one in G major by Johann Sebastian Bach.
All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willreidenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Mr. Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Lukanowski, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes of Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, hi Janet, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Benham, Gillisert, David Donahue, Blair Seiberg, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carl- Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lenneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Nolly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, D.N. Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Cobble, Julian Rodkins, Breed O'Connell. Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Izatuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Dan Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazleton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Divich, Ashra Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Laurie Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Bacorny, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Karts, Dean Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganshik, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidorowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sawyer Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, and Sarah Johnson for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>